Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about Bartolus of Sassoferrato. Bartolus is a 14th century jurist, born in 1314, died in 1357. Jurists became very important in Italy during the late Middle Ages because Northern Italy was legally part of the Holy Roman Empire. And in the 11th century, in the 10 hundreds, the legal code of Emperor Justinian was rediscovered in Northern Italy. And so because the Holy Roman Empire claims to be Roman, well, it it must surely, therefore, be based on and answerable to Roman law. So it became important to show how the Holy Roman Empire was, in fact, based on Roman law. And so Roman lawyers become very important to the legitimacy of the Holy Roman Empire insofar as they show that the actual existing structures of the Holy Roman Empire are in accordance with Roman law. Now, bear in mind, Justinian is a Byzantine emperor from the 6th century. So Justinian is a Byzantine emperor from about 500 years before the code is rediscovered in Northern Italy. So the Holy Roman Empire has to prove that it behaves in a way that accords with a legal code written 500 plus years ago for a different state located in a different part of the Mediterranean. Uh, Although it should be said, briefly, the Byzantine Empire under Justinian did occupy Italy, including Northern Italy. So there's some nominal connection there. Um, But both emperors claim the inheritance of the Roman Empire, which of course occupied Northern Italy. So it's not as if uh, these laws could be said to not apply to Northern Italy on the basis that they weren't generally part of the Byzantine territory. Uh, So Bartolus is probably the most famous of the Italian scholars, and he comes in the 14th century. So a couple hundred years here after the code is rediscovered and begins to be integrated into the Holy Roman Empire's legitimation mechanics. So that the big conundrum, as it's often pitched, is that the Italian city-states in the 14th century really have de facto independence from the Holy Roman Empire. They make their own laws, they do their own things, and they don't, in practice, defer to the Holy Roman Emperor. But legally, it seems as if they're obligated to because legally they're formally incorporated into the territory of the Holy Roman Empire. And according to Roman law, it would seem that they uh, are in fact answerable to the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, why is this? So according to Roman law, the rights and powers of the people are transferred to the emperor and belong to the emperor. Additionally, The empire is a gift from God, so the emperor's rule is religiously sanctioned. 
Both of these claims are made in Justinian's Code at the same time. One of the wonderful, uh, but often frustrating for legal theorists, uh, things about Roman political theory is its willingness to claim legitimacy on multiple different bases at once. And to not really try to sort this out into one coherent legal schema, but to just take legitimacy wherever it can be found. It's one of the things I've always found uh, really interesting about the Roman Empire. But if you're a lawyer, uh, this is a bit of a problem because on the one hand, the emperor seems in some way to be answerable potentially to the people. On the other hand, the emperor seems answerable to God. And these are two different bases for the emperor's power that could potentially come into conflict. So, what do you do about this? How do you resolve this? Well, one of the earlier glossators from the uh, 13th century, Ernarius, tries to resolve this by suggesting that the people used to have the power to make law, but once this power was transferred to the emperor by embrace of the true religion, it could not be returned to the people. So, oh yes, in you know, ancient times, before Christianity, the emperor's power came from the people. But then this was changed by the embrace of Christianity. And after that point, that stuff about the people just no longer matters. Right? The thing is, in point of fact, the Italian cities were independent, did have autonomy from the emperor, and this needed to be explained. The independence was granted to them or kind of recognized through the peace of Constance in 1183, but it was recognized there as a privilege that should, in theory, have been revocable by the emperor. The emperor kind of gave them a privilege of autonomy in that piece that subsequent emperors should be able to revoke. But in practice, of course, subsequent emperors could not revoke it. If they tried to revoke it, the Italian cities would never listen and never comply. So Bartolus. Uh, tries to resolve this by arguing that while universal dominion is given to the emperor, the emperor is not given dominion over specific things in the world. So the Holy Roman Emperor has dominion over the world, of which the Italian cities are a part, but not over the cities themselves. So how does that work? Well, there are a few possibilities that Bartolus considers. One the emperor can donate parts of the world to others. He can make grants. Supporters of the papacy argued that the emperor Constantine donated his powers to the pope, and then Charlemagne received some of that same power from the pope. In this way, the popes become a transfer mechanism. They take all of the power that Constantine donates and then give out some of it to Charlemagne. Right? The imperialists, however, argue that the successors of Constantine cannot be bound by that donation because of the emperor's power in the first place. The emperor's power is so great that any donation that the emperor makes must be revocable. So even though Constantine has made that donation, that can't mean that the power has permanently been alienated from the emperor. An alternative explanation is that the empire came to Christ himself, and then Christ gave it to the Pope, who passed some of it to Charlemagne. This is a canon law argument, but this would really weaken the emperor's position, because then once Christ shows up, uh, the emperor becomes almost irrelevant. That would 
badly, badly sideline the emperor. So, of course, from a canon law standpoint, this is an attractive move. But that just can't work if you want to have uh, a reasonably strong secular power. So, ultimately, Bartolus concludes that the emperor has only delegated power to the Italian cities. The emperor is still sovereign, and insofar as the Italian cities deny this, they are, in fact, usurpers. However, the Italian cities still have recourse if they can argue that they've had autonomy since time immemorial. And the reason they can do this is that Roman law says that immemorial custom is observed as law, and it calls this law established by usage. So according to Justinian's code, quote, anything that the people show their approval of, even when there is no written rule, ought to be binding on all. So if the emperor uh, gets his power from the people, but the people have been ruling themselves in practice since time immemorial or for a very long time, then the autonomy of the city-states derives ultimately from the same source as imperial power. Right? So, even if the Italian cities gained autonomy through usurpation, if enough time has passed since they gained their autonomy, the autonomy becomes functionally real insofar as attempts to determine the city's status will end up in the city's own courts. Right? So, if you try to legislate what is the legal status of Perugia, right, that's going to go through Perugia's own court system. So the city's own institutions will rule on the city's status. And at no point in in point of fact will the court case go to the Holy Roman Emperor. That will never actually happen. So at this point, as a point of fact, the city is its own prince for Bartolos or Kibitas Sibi Princeps. Right? The thing is, this doesn't actually seem to to solve the problem because Roman law explicitly qualifies the role of custom. For one, Roman law says that uh, custom cannot be placed uh, ahead of reason or the law. It cannot be considered valid to the point of overriding reason or the law. And then secondly, this argument seems to neglect the religious dimension which suggests that the emperor's power comes through Christianity. So, why does Bartolus construct the theory in this not totally satisfying way? Historian Magnus Ryan argues that Bartolus doesn't actually need to offer a justification of the autonomy of the Italian cities that will convince anyone because it's already established that the Italian cities are independent de facto. There isn't really a need to make a legal argument that will satisfy the emperor because the emperor has no power anyway over the Italian cities in point of fact. So it's not really about what it seems to be about. It's not about why the Italian cities are entitled to rule themselves uh, versus being ruled by the emperor. Instead, Ryan suggests that Bartolus was explaining to Italian citizens why the city-state governments were legitimate. So instead of this being an external argument that you're making to persuade the emperor or to persuade the pope, this is an internal argument that you're making to get the citizens of the Italian city-states to comply with the political systems. 
because the political systems don't appear to be legitimate insofar as they do not seem to have the appropriate relationship to the emperor or to the pope. An argument has to be made to the citizen why the citizen should follow the law. Right? In Italy, the term people was used to refer to the plebeians. So if the city-states are not deferring to the emperor, why shouldn't their governments be made answerable to the people, to the plebeians? Right? The answer is that this causes too much trouble for the Italian ruling class. So instead, it's said that the city is its own prince, and that allows the city to be emperor in accordance with Roman law. Now, if the city is the emperor... Well, according to Roman law, the people gave their rights and powers to the emperor. If the city is the emperor, the people have given their rights and powers to the city, understood as an abstraction. And that abstraction is not reducible to the particular ruling families that dominate the political scene. Right? In Italian cities, the ruling families that are influential change constantly because of, of the Republican laws. You have a constant possibility that the family that's in charge will change. So the legitimacy of an Italian city-state cannot be based on the particular ruling family or the particular person who is currently playing the leading role in, in politics. So to avoid that, you get the city as a corporate person, as an abstraction, right? Bartola says that, quote, those who hold the res publica by tyranny detain it by force from the res publica itself, or its superior lord, i.e. the emperor, not from any private person. Right? So if you uh, don't follow the laws of Italian city-states, if you try to, through violence, uh, you know, take control and break the rules, you're offending against the city itself, or against the emperor theoretically, but not in fact. You are not offending against the particular people who previously were in charge of the city. Right? So, insurrection, tyranny, and so on, those are crimes against the city itself, reified as an abstraction. Now, the question this leaves you with is well, what is a city? And should we take cities to be real in this sort of way? So, in Roman law, you do not get these kinds of corporate actors. In Roman law, the people give their power to the emperor. The people do not give their power to the republic or to Rome as a city. They give it to the emperor specifically. So by saying that a city can be emperor, Bartolus is saying that a, an abstraction can play the role of a person. That an abstraction can stand in for a person. And of course, if you're, if you're thinking about this in kind of empiricist terms, yeah, for empiricists, abstractions like city ring false. What is a city really? You know, if you start to dig into it from an empiricist point of view, it's a collection of people who happen to live in a place. In what way can that be an emperor? An emperor has to make decisions. How does a collection of people in a place make decisions? Oh, through a political system? Well, that seems to beg the question, doesn't it? The political system is the thing that's being legitimated. If you're saying the political system is legitimate because the emperor is a prince, you seem to be kind of doubling down. 
So you see the conundrum. Now, the, the huge upshot of this is the idea of the city as a corporate person. This becomes a very compelling idea in the history of political thought, and it becomes influential in the development of modern notions of the state, right? Our notion of the state as an abstraction, which can nonetheless do things. When we talk about the state is doing this or is doing that, we are treating the state like it's a person. So we are kind of treating the state as if it's, you know, kivitas sibi princeps. So that's the long-term influence of this. And it's, you know, relatively straightforward to say, you know, that an abstraction that isn't straightforwardly you know, identifiable with a particular person or particular object, you know, might nonetheless be real. There's certainly theological precedent for that. You know, there's precedent in terms of platonic forms for talking about abstractions as potentially real, right? But not in the empiricist tradition. And part of what's interesting about this is that Bartolus is very focused on what is actually occurring on the ground in Italy. It's a very uh, seemingly empiricist account, which proceeds from descriptively, you know, what is actually happening. The fact of the matter is that in Italy, the city is its own prince. The city acts as if it's its own prince. Uh, yeah, it, it appears to be that way. And because it appears to be that way, Bartolus goes, well, you know, for reasons of, of making the theory correspond with reality, uh, it, it, this must be the case. It must be the case that it is this way. But once you get beyond this kind of situation, this very weird situation where you have a Holy Roman Empire based on a legal code from more than 500 years ago, written by an emperor of a different state that the Holy Roman Empire is pretending to be a continuation of, uh, once you get out of the context of Italian cities which have a de facto autonomy from this state that is pretending to be a different state from half a, set, half a millennium ago, uh, then it becomes an open question of, well, um, what is a city? Does that actually work? Can we use abstractions in that kind of way? What do you think, Alex? Um, yeah. Well, he's a jurist, so... He wouldn't maybe think so much of pure empiricism in the sense we've called him an empiricist because he likes de facto autonomy of the cities and all that. But if you're a jurist, I thought the idea is that there's a difference between the positive law, so the day-to-day -day acts past, and then the context of what's fundamentally just. And that's always abstract, and that's always seen as something that is like a check on, yeah, check on the actual day-to-day -day law cost, you know? Yeah, lawyers operate in a kind of interesting space. If we try to think of a lawyer as if a lawyer were a political theorist, and, and we do this with Bartolas because Bartolas is a lawyer who is treated as a political theorist. Uh, lawyers use terms that are abstract and are imprecise to uh, get particular things to happen. They are kind of uh, word magicians, word wizards. They are using terms you know, to bring about discrete outcomes, generally. A lawyer is you know, advocating for someone or something or trying to make a legal argument to make something or something appear true, right? So a lawyer has a, a, an, an express motivation in trying to make terms go in such a way that they can bring about a particular result. 
right? So when we look at Bartolos, what we see is someone who is trying to justify a particular state of affairs that exists in Italy uh, to the citizens in Italy who are frustrated and don't like the fact that their politics is dominated by these rampaging families who don't seem to have any kind of basis in either Roman law or in canon law. And because that's his motivation, the terms get bent in that way. So there's a willingness to bend terms, which is not empiricist, but there's also a, a concern for reality. And that's what I'm really trying to get at when I say empiricist. There's this focal point on practical and application. And it's more important that the theory get the job done in the moment than that it be uh, philosophically, technically correct or, or fully consistent. If this argument succeeds in persuading people to behave, that's good enough for the purposes of Bartolos. The lawyer is making an argument that needs to achieve a particular purpose. It doesn't need to be fully defensible in totally abstract terms. And the lawyer is perfectly aware that the argument is manipulative in certain respects and doesn't care and is using it anyway to achieve a particular outcome. (laughs) Right? You can see that kind of, yeah, sympathy for the fact that he might not agree with what he's saying when he says things like, one man's tyrant is another man's judge, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And the pure political theorist is often more bothered by this, more bothered by something which seems to to work, but isn't true. I'm I'm thinking of Aquinas in De Regno. I think for him, a citizen is something, it's like an action, it's all the actual people in the state, as opposed to an abstract idea of the popolo, the people. Um, Is that more real, do you think? Because when you said this abstraction is key for the, a key influence on the state. I don't know, maybe Aquinas has got something to say too. Oh, certainly. I, I wouldn't say that it's just Bartolos or that Bartolos has a monopoly on the theory of the state. Of course, people will also be familiar with Hobbes's contributions to that. Uh, but what I, I would say is the scholastic tradition that Aquinas is associated with is more concerned with getting an argument that is philosophically correct that is uh, really airtight defensible, Bartolos is more interested in something that's functional, that will get the job done in his particular context. And in part because Bartolos is just focused on, on solving a discrete problem in a functional way, he's able to really tailor his approach to the specific situation he's in. And he becomes a famous name and someone that is regarded as the authority on Roman law. Oh, and nobody's a good jurist unless they follow Bartolus, uh, it said. So, because he focuses on something that is workable in the context, he's able to produce something that has a lot of influence immediately in a very straightforward, obvious, and discreet way. But it doesn't carry as well into other contexts because it was fit for a specific purpose. It was not made to be... uh, an everlasting theory that you could apply in all times and all places. And that's the ambition of, say, Thomas Aquinas. Mm. Yeah, because all the arguments are always citations of discrete Roman law, codex, whatever you call them, chunks. And it doesn't seem to work saying that you need a superior in order to get rid of tyrants, but then the whole free cities argument, a city can be free without a superior. 
and most of his arguments for justice are in terms of yeah you need to have a superior yeah. and it does yeah seems like cherry picking well in some ways it's similar to american arguments about the constitution right in the United States, it's kind of taken as, as given that the Constitution is, is if, if you regard the American political system as in any way legitimate, then you regard the Constitution as legitimate. So people who regard the American political system as legitimate will always start with the Constitution and what it says. And if they want to make an argument that the government can do something, they'll have to base it on something in the Constitution. And so there are certain clauses like the Necessary and Proper Clause that become so important because they are potentially readable in different ways so that you can squeeze certain potentialities out of the Constitution. Now, the reason that people use the Constitution in this way is because the Constitution is the only thing that there seems to be universal agreement on. And so if you tried to draw on resources outside the Constitution, those other resources would have controversial origins. So you would not be able to persuade people with it. And if you're interested in something which is functionally persuasive, then you'll build your argument around whatever it is that persuades people in your time and place. So in the case of Bartolus, because he's in what is de jure, the Holy Roman Empire, what is Roman law will be taken to be good. So if he builds all of his arguments around interpretations of specific bits of Roman law, he can borrow valor from the fact that everybody already buys the legitimacy of Roman law, right? Of course, once you get into a context where we don't all agree that Roman law is legitimate, many of these arguments seem less plausible, and the, and the whole political theory becomes potentially less influential. Despite that, I think Bartolus has held up reasonably well as an influential person in the tradition, because this idea of a city as an abstraction is... A powerful idea that people do draw upon outside the context. But the precise way that Bartolus formulates that idea, it's too dependent on Roman law. And so it only applies really straightforwardly in contexts where everybody is buying Roman law. And in contexts that look vaguely like Renaissance Italy, where while Roman law is something everyone endorses, in practice, people are living under different states. Is that why at the beginning you said you find Roman law so interesting because it claims legitimacy on multiple bases because everyone agrees with this body but the body's got contradictory interests signifying. Yeah, so there's, there's the way that Roman law is used in the Italian Renaissance which is interesting and then of course there's the way that Roman law worked when uh, you know in the Roman Empire itself so in the original Roman Empire not the Holy Roman Empire, the original Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire uh, the Roman Emperor could claim legitimacy on lots of different bases at the same time. And so explicitly in the law, there's a religious claim and there is a claim that is more traditional and more based on the notion of, of the emperor as you know, the uh, defender of the people, right? So in Roman law, you just have both of those arguments made at once. And it's not really an issue because each argument helps the emperor. Each argument gives the emperor more power. And in point of fact, in the Byzantine Empire, in the Roman Empire, you have emperors and they do exercise some level of authority over the whole territory of the state. So having lots of different arguments for why the emperor is in charge, all of those are equally use useful to a Roman emperor in antiquity. Now, when you move it forward to the Holy Roman Empire and to the context of the Italian Renaissance, now you run into trouble because in point of fact, the Holy Roman Empire is not structured like the actual Roman Empire of old or the Byzantine Empire of old. It doesn't actually work like that. 
But because it derives legitimacy from the fact that Charlemagne was crowned as the Holy Roman Empire, it is trapped by the fact that that's the story. It now must LARP as the Roman Empire. It has to pretend to be the Roman Empire, even though it doesn't have structures which correspond. And the amazing thing is that Roman law is so versatile that to a substantial degree, you can get away with doing this. It would be as if some country in a whole different part of the world, uh, 500 years after the American Constitution was ratified. So in you know, 2200, right? In the late 2200s, some state in South America uh, adopted the U.S. Constitution, pretended that it was called the United States of America, right? Took on that name, the Holy United States of America, and found our Constitution and began trying to claim that everything that it did was in accordance with our Constitution, despite maybe the fact that it was, you know, didn't have states, or it had, uh, in addition to, you know, states, it had free cities that were not organized like states, uh, you know, so despite major structural differences. And people talk about issues with trying to use the U.S. Constitution in the United States just a couple hundred years after that was written. Uh, the, the fact that Roman law could work even, even badly, but could work at all for this purpose is absolutely amazing and really puts into perspective some of our contemporary legal systems and how uh, really dependent on context they are. Roman law was written to last. When you said that it might work, say, a few hundred years in the future in a Latin American country, that kind of took away my assumption that Roman law works here because the people in Italy see themselves as the heirs to the empire, you know, with the language of the Yeah, pop. I suppose it would be more, it would make more sense if you imagine the United States breaking into two chunks and then one of the chunks, uh, you know, say, say there's a Western chunk and that Western chunk gradually over time, uh, you know, adopts the Spanish language. But eventually in that Western chunk that's adopted the Spanish language, the constitution in English is rediscovered. And then a group of Spanish lawyers begin arguing in Spanish that this part uh, of, of America is actually the United States of America and, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that would be more accurate than to say a, a South American or Latin American country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is unfair as a, another modern comparison, but we're talking about, you know, conflict between Guelph, so pro-papacy, and Ghibelline, so pro-emperor parties in Italy, the factions. And if you weren't expelled, then you could be, I guess, kicked out of the system legally, say, with a law that about, um, I think, finance and also electoral law. That sounds a lot like the complaints of fringe parties today, like UKIP in the UK. They would say that they can't win a general election because the voting system is first past the post and because uh, when they try and make a donation, it's taxed to death with inheritance tax. So may maybe similar yeah. kind of themes. I don't know. Yeah, it goes, I think, further insofar as there's actual expulsion from the city oftentimes. Uh, the, the key thing here is that this expulsion is being defended because, of course, the emperor can expel people for political reasons. So if the city is the emperor, then the city can expel people. So it defends the power of the city to expel because it's not that you're being expelled by 
the particular family or the particular ruling group that happens to be influential at this point in time, you're being expelled by the city itself and the city is its own prince. So if you get expelled by a city, you've actually been expelled by the emperor, according to Bartolus's theory, and therefore your expulsion is completely legal. I was going to say it reminds a bit of Hobbes having this idea that the state is, uh, maybe not, like an abstraction that is, it's outside any person that's holding the title of king. Um, but then I swear every political theory kind of implies that. So what's unique about the city being a prince unto itself? Because I thought all kings are, I don't know, they, it's not the person wearing the crown that that matters. That's always implied. Yeah, so I'd say the kind of the, there's a little bit of presentism in, in what you've just said, but an understandable presentism that I think many people in the audience might you know, also have, which is this thought that the concept of the state or the city is an abstraction is always used in political theory in you know, largely the same way. Uh, it is true that the city is an abstraction that does get used in classical political thought, uh, particularly in Greek thought. And there were Greek theorists who liked to think of the Roman Empire as a city of cities. Uh, and that was their particular way of legitimating it or justifying it. That was not the Roman explanation but some Greeks living in the Roman Empire thought about it in that way, using the city in the kind of uh, context in which, say, somebody like uh, Plato or Aristotle would have used that term. That said, when you talk about a city in, say, Platonism, you're talking about uh, different kinds of cities, and the kind of city is defined by who does the ruling in that city, right? So the you know, philosophical city is ruled by the philosophers. The honor-loving city is, is ruled by the auxiliaries. The money-loving city is ruled by the oligarchs and so on, right? So a city in Platonism is defined heavily by the particular part that does the ruling. And so there's less emphasis, uh, if any emphasis, and I'm, I'm not going to try to adjudicate whether there's any, but certainly much less emphasis on the idea of a city as a corporate actor freestanding who happens to be in charge of it. Right. For Plato, the city is defined by who is in charge of it. That's not to say Bartolus didn't talk about the methods of government. In fact, he kind of not copy paste, but Aquinas did a similar thing following this Platonic Aristotelian scheme of monarchy what is it, uh, oligarchy, or aristocracy, democracy, and then, or polity, and then their corrupt forms. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Bartolus has all sorts of opinions about, about you know, institutional features. But I think that those are less important because for Bartolus, the goal is not to get particular political systems to, you know, while he quite likes, for instance, the way Perugia is constructed, he is not engaged in some kind of project of trying to revolutionize the laws of all the Italian cities. It's much more a project of justification. It's more straightforwardly a project of legitimation than uh, some of the more normative projects that we've talked about on other episodes. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, the kind of Aristotelian emphasis is, is just not there. Aristotle is so focused on trying to say, you know, what's what's better or what's worse and put stuff in hierarchies but with bartolus it's more on this big picture question of you know, how do you clear space for any autonomous or free city in italy how do you make people believe that a city can be free and uh, should exercise political power 
uh, without any kind of relationship uh, with the emperor and with you know vague or unclear relationships at many points to the papacy. Would it be worth giving the listeners maybe a list of some of the terms that were used to, I guess, check legally whether the, the city was fulfilling that function as a legitimate or whether it's just a faction? For example, like the list of Giles' Rome's uh, list of tyranny, or even this concept of public good that's kind of thrown around. Well, yeah, so there is some discussion of, of the good or common good in Bartolus's theory. But the, uh, one of the issues that Magnus Ryan points out is that the way that he has constructed the legal authority of the city makes it kind of difficult for a notion of common good to do very much work in the theory. And so, uh, you know, I kind of view a lot of what Bartolus says about common good as kind of sitting alongside his contribution. It doesn't do much of the work in his political theory, and it's not the stuff that he's really remembered for. Uh, so, you know, if, if we look at some of the other people we've talked about, there was a lot more emphasis on that side of it. But this is more straightforwardly a legal theory with some accompanying remarks about uh, political theory as such but remarks that are not really backed up by the legal theory and in some ways are in tension with it. So, for instance, if there were something like a common good, you know, then you'd have to talk about what's the relationship of the particular you know, procedural form to that common good. And then it might be the case that you could challenge the authority of a city on the basis that it doesn't clearly correspond with common good. And you have this question of what's common, what counts as common. And that pushes you back into a debate about, you know, what is the good really for in the city or who is it for? And this moves you back toward that discussion of who are the people. Once you're talking about who are the people, now you're in a more basic argument in which the authority of the city depends on the people and therefore identifying who the people are. And then if you're talking about the common good, you're talking about the good of the people, and it's whoever it is that you took to be those people. So this leads you back into an argument in which the city's legitimacy depends on the people, which would put you in a position where ordinary Italians can potentially rebel or potentially challenge the legitimacy of the free cities on the grounds that they don't in any appropriate way answer to their populations, to their plebeian populations. So... All of that causes a lot of trouble. To avoid the problems that are caused by that, you get this legal theory. And the legal theory is the thing which can potentially actually legitimate a city to an Italian plebeian. So that's where I tend to put the emphasis when I talk about Bartolus, uh, rather than kind of running through another set of you know, different types of, of city or different types of regime and trying to talk about which is better or worse. Because ultimately, all of that just creates trouble for this, for the rest of this theory. But if you're justifying it to an ordinary Italian somehow, you would have to say that this faction is not a faction, it is the city at the moment. And then the person might say, why? Oh, uh, well, oh, Bartolus no. won't do that. He won't say that a faction is the city. The city? He'll say that it's not the faction that has done it, it's the city that's done it, because the city is its own prince. Right now, of course, this problem of conflating the particular factions leading the city with the city is always a live possibility because the city is an abstraction. It doesn't have clear content. And this is what's really powerful about it as a legitimating concept. The thing that makes 
I like to call them legitimating abstractions. Maybe I've never used that term before on the show. Uh, a, a legitimating abstraction in kind of my theory of legitimacy is a term that doesn't have any kind of clear or precise meaning, but it has a lot of possible meanings. And the possible meanings allow you to use it to tell different stories about why the state is legitimate. So say, for instance, you know, liberty can be a legitimating abstraction. If you say that the state is legitimate because it guarantees or secures or provides liberty, the next question you, you ask is, well, what does liberty mean? And the answer is, it can mean almost anything you want, depending on how you conceptualize it. And that's what makes it so useful as a legitimating abstraction. It has this diversity of ways it can be interpreted or understood, right? Uh, it's also potentially dangerous insofar as different ways it can be understood can conflict. But if you uh, have people agreeing that the state guarantees liberty, but you have people arguing over what kinds of liberty are important, at least they're not arguing about whether the state is legitimate. They're arguing over why. And legitimating abstractions are good at moving people from arguing about is it to how is it. Is that not In a similar kind of way, the city is that kind of abstraction. If you say, well, it's the city... Yeah, that's doing it. The question is, well, what is the city? Right. So just as you can do it with, you know, what is the what is the state guaranteeing? You can also do it by playing games with what the state is in the first instance, and that's what Bartolos does here. Maybe all concepts are kind of like that. They there's no obviously fixed meaning. Uh, obviously, some more than others, but is yeah, some more than others. Some are are easier to use in this kind of way than others because they're more fungible. So, for instance, a lot of ancient terms that you might use to legitimate a state, like, you know, you might say that the state guarantees uh, or, or the uh, emperor or the person, because oftentimes in antiquity, it's the person rather than a corporate actor. Uh, you might say that the person uh, is charismatic in the sense that they deliver peace, right? Peace is an abstraction and it can have multiple meanings, but peace seems to connote a discrete state of affairs, seems to, right? In a similar way to prosperity. Peace and prosperity can mean a variety of things, but there, it, it would be hard to argue that a depression is prosperity, and it would be hard to argue that an endless war of all against all is peace, right? At extremis, it becomes harder to bend those concepts than, say, a concept like liberty or equality or representation, which is just much more fungible and much easier to play with. And that's one of the advantages of, say, liberal legitimation stories, is that they're, they're very fungible compared to antique stories. So they're easier to just constantly reinvent, twist, turn around, play with. Is that why Marxists might claim that they're... Is it called substantial? This is a substantial policy as opposed to... I don't know. Um, or they would say, yeah, they would claim something like that. A substantial policy. Uh, or I don't know if that's the word, but basically something with weight and that's not reified. They, yeah, they like to call are, it other are, are you talking about material, like a material? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. A material, yeah, yeah. material versus yeah. Uh, ideological? I don't know. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah. You're talking about materialism and idealism. Yeah. Uh, older legitimating abstractions are more rooted in materiality, and that makes them less fungible than more thoroughgoingly idealist abstractions that uh, don't really, really don't have any kind of clear 
Yeah, you can call slavery freedom, and and you can get people to believe that. That's that's relatively easy to do. It's much harder to get total war to be called peace. Potentially doable. I mean, George Orwell you know, plays with the possibility that you might be able to call war peace. Um, but I think probably most of us would agree that it's harder to call war peace than to call slavery freedom. It's easier to call slavery freedom than to call war peace. Especially if there's like, well, getting off topic, but slight, maybe not slight reductions in the, the duties of slavery. And in Bartolus's time, there were lots of grades or reductions in the amount of duties you had to do, depending on what level you were in the citizenship ladder. And I wonder if that's, is that more, because maybe to his successors like Baldus, another theorist, jurist, or some conservatives at the time, his concept of a citizen is quite liberal, maybe, or progressive, or whatever you want to call it. Well, you know, we did talk about the, you know, relatively recently, we did the Arthur Shastra and the uh, you know, fixedness of that class position and the law giving different classes things to do. You know, that's much more common in ancient and medieval theory to, to have different rules for different parts of the population that you define in different discrete ways. Uh, classes or castes or varnas are just much more common in ancient thought, which is why, say, for Plato, when he talks about the city, the city is always being defined in terms of the particular class or particular type of person that rules in it, right? In the same way, if you look at the way Aristotle does monarchy, oligarchy, uh, democracy, it's rule of the one, rule of the few, rule of the many, that it's rules of the rather than, say, a city is an abstract corporate entity. We, you know, now you might think, you know, of democracy as an abstract corporate entity or of an oligarchy as an abstract corporate entity. But in the original Greek, it's just rule of the many or rule of the few. It doesn't have that corporate quality to it, at least not obviously. And so for that reason, historians of thought have tended to make the argument that the notion of the state as an abstraction is a kind of medieval early modern, late medieval idea. And they tend to identify it with people like Hobbes and Bartolus. By corporate, do we just mean like a group, a corporation? I, we, we don't just mean like a group, right? So there's discussion of groups in ancient thought uh, of, of sets of people, right? Uh, you know, the Phoenicians are a group, but a corporate actor is not reducible to the particular people that you might identify as uh, acting in its name, right? So if the state is being you know, personated by a sovereign in, say, Hobbes's theory, right, the state can only act through the sovereign personator. But the sovereign personator is not identical to the state. The sovereign personator is personating, representing, and speaking for the state. Right. The state cannot speak without the personator because the state has no natural body, no natural person. It's a pure corporate abstraction. Right. So if you start talking about individuals or collectivities, you're talking about actual existing bodies. And when you're talking about bodies, you're not talking about corporate actors. Corporate actors don't have bodies. They can be represented or personated by people with bodies. But the corporate actor itself has no body. Could we link that to the idea that the, the ethics, the structure of the law is not guaranteed by the positive law? 
or the ethics of the law is not, it's not to, it's outside of the day-to-day acts passed by the law. Because, yeah, I, the, the justification the for justi- the law. Yeah, the, yeah. the legitimacy of it. Why? Because Marsilius had uh, natural law, the use gentium, but to him that wouldn't be something that's outside the positive law. That's just part, part of the law. Whereas I think for Bartolus, it, it's not part of the positive law. And that's what I was, I'm still not sure, but I asked the question at the beginning, like a distinction between positive law and then the ethical context it's in and whether those two are the same thing or not. And for Marcellus, it seems they are the same thing. Right. So this kind of gets back to one of the things that I mentioned kind of in the beginning is this idea that the emperor can rule the world, but not particular things in it. Right. So the emperor, of course, rules the world in this big, you know, normative, you know, general sense. Right. But particular things in the world are, of course, not ruled by the emperor, even particular things within what is de jure that, you know, seems to be the territory of the Holy Roman Empire. Right. So there's uh, what the law says and then the context in which it applies. And because the Holy Roman Empire is very clearly a different context from the Roman Empire, if it is to be meaningfully the Holy Roman Empire, it must be the case that the law and the context can be in some ways discussed. Otherwise, you know, the fact that the Holy Roman Empire clearly does not have the same structure or exist in precisely the same way as the old Roman Empire would be a serious and continuing problem. You'd go, well, how can you call this a Roman Empire when it is not in point of fact structured like the Roman Empire? Well, the way that you can get around this is by saying, well, on one level it is and on another another level it's not. And we live on the level where it's not. Of course, the emperor has the theoretical right. Of course. Which is why even in, uh, you know, the the quote I read off, those who hold the res publica by tyranny detain it by force from the res publica itself or its superior lord, not from any private person or its superior lord. There's still a uh, reference to the superior master there. Uh, But of course, that's just in theory, because in point of fact, the city-state doesn't have a superior master. Mm. And therefore, it has to be Kivitas to be Princeps. And then what about the Pope? Because we don't see much of the Pope in this theory. But then later in his life, I think, uh, he, well, I think and it might be Alfonso, one of the Holy Roman Emperors starts taking over uh, Italy. And I think... The idea is that the papacy is where you can run to and hope for some kind of temporal power outside of your spiritual domain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you get into a context where you really are having to talk about emperors and popes again, you know, then you're going to need a theory that will appeal to them. <laughs> this is a theory that, you know, as, as I think Ryan rightly points out, is mostly going to appeal to the ordinary people in the Italian city-states. Uh, and that's that's the difficulty. Once you you are dealing with uh, you know, direct confrontations with the emperor, then it's possible for the emperor to revise the contingent situation in which this theory makes sense. And if the emperor comes, as indeed emperors do, and tries to establish order and uh, revoke the autonomy of a particular Italian city-state, 
well, then the usurpation comes to an end. And that's why they're called usurpers. So, I mean, at least in theory, if the Roman emperor does show up, he can end their usurpation. In theory. But I thought once it's uh, recognized as a usurpation by the, by the city, it becomes no longer de facto, it becomes de jure. becomes de- yeah, legitimate. Yeah, because of the time immemorial thing. But of course, because it's still got to be the case because of all the problems that you have if you try to explain it any other way. It's still got to be the case that the emperors only delegated power to the cities. So even in this case, when we're talking about, well, the usurpation has become de jure because it's time immemorial honored custom, it's still the case that that has happened only through a delegation, according to the formal theory. So it, it would still, I think, be the case for Bartolus that an emperor who shows up could could revoke this. The theory doesn't seem to protect against that possibility. That's why I think Magnus Ryan makes the argument that it doesn't protect against that possibility. It's really been written for a different purpose. For the internal enemies. Yeah, yeah, for the internal. To, to stop all of the constant chaos that mars the politics of free cities in Italy. It just, in order for a, fa- a faction or... Maybe we should say a city to, yeah, to justify itself to people who want to disobey, though. Surely you'd have to do things that are quite removed from these, let's say, abstract theoretical arguments. It would be quite simple things like, well, I don't know, but maybe security, militarily, economically, whatever that meant at the time. It wouldn't be these kind of general things. So would, would these general things just be like at the beginning and the end of say, the agenda. Like, they would announce this is what's legitimate, and then they'd get on with the actual business, things like sending an army here, or, you know, more, more specific policy plans that we saw in Cortilia before. Well, the, the hope here is that if you can get people to buy this, this story, they won't make demands that are as, as difficult to meet. If you feel that your city really is just a particular power arrangement that has no legitimacy, that doesn't really come from you know, the structure of the Holy Roman Empire or come from uh, some kind of, of good arrangement with the Pope. You know, if your feeling is just that your city is a contingent thing, then as soon as you have an opportunity to potentially revise the system and change the Republican laws, maybe try to establish yourself as, as a prince, uh, you'll do that. Why, why wouldn't you? So the, the aim here is to try to put some brakes on the degree to which people make demands that are, you know, temporal. Of course, you know, like I said, it's, it's to pacify plebeians who might otherwise be very frustrated by all of this. And to pacify would-be rebel, rebels who might try to challenge the uh, systems in these cities. It's a pacification which is in lieu of giving them what they might want materially, right? So it pacifies them and, by giving them less than what they want, lowering the demands. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, which is why you know, a critical theorist would call it ideology from, you know, from that point of view, because it works as a pacifier. But, you know, legitimation stories and ideology are very interrelated things. As I think uh, we talked about on the Zizek episode, there's a lot of overlap there. You know, they're kind of different points of view. Yeah, I was going to say they'd say that about any theory, surely, or any anything yeah, ideology. You could. I don't know. Yeah, you could. You could. But it, of course, yeah. You know, sometimes people think that certain things really are the the justification that would justify the state on their own view, 
And sometimes the abstraction that they have conceptualized in the particular way they've conceptualized it is demanding. I mean, you can understand prosperity as I own a horse. You know, uh, you can understand prosperity as I have a suburban home with a white picket fence. Uh, You can understand some of these abstractions in relatively demanding terms. And that's in part why abstractions like liberty and equality and representation are so attractive because they are more mutable and it's harder to use them in really demanding ways than something like prosperity, right? Especially when you're living in a country, today we have so much economic growth, so much development in the world. If you start talking about prosperity, it's much easier for people to get rather high Falutin notions of what prosperity ought to mean for their day-to-day life. When they look on the internet and they see Elon Musk in the rocket ship going to space, if your legitimacy relies on prosperity, I mean, you know, why aren't you getting some of that? It's easy to make that kind of argument. Uh, Something like equality, well, you could understand it in terms of equality of income or wealth, but you can also understand it as equality of opportunity or equality of groups. You can understand it in terms of equality of income, but for racial groups, and then there can be enormous inequality within those groups. Uh, There's all sorts of ways to play around with a concept like equality, but prosperity is a little bit harder to screw around with. It doesn't seem like there's that many textual references. Maybe it's because I can't translate the Latin or haven't looked at much of Bartolus. But anyway, a lot of the theory is based on consent. And then you could see other similar... It's got to be because Roman law emphasizes consensus at Concordia. So you can't get away from the concept of consent. Now, when we talk about the Roman concept of consent, it's important to bear in mind that this is not individuals giving their consent, right? It's not like the way that modern liberals have appropriated the concept of consent to say that, you know, every person has a right to refuse to give consent. And if they refuse to give consent, they have to be in some way persuaded to consent. That's not what consent means in ancient Roman political thought. Consent is the sense that there is an agreement on the identity of the emperor, right? The sense that there is. Right. And of course, particular people can step out of that. And insofar as they step out of that, they diminish that sense that there is this agreement. But the sense that there is agreement is the thing that matters. This aura of charisma, that's what contributes to the auctoritas, to the quality of being the kind of person that you ought to listen to or ought to obey of the emperor. Right. What the emperor ultimately has is you know, this, this Latin concept of auctoritas, which is is just the quality of being the kind of person that you ought to obey, a very distinctively Roman concept. Uh, and there's all sorts of stuff that kind of goes into Octoritas, but yet Octoritas is its own thing. It doesn't straightforwardly depend on anything else. It can be tied or linked in various ways to different things. You know, it might be hard for someone to have Octoritas if they are seen to be incapable, let's say, defending the state. Uh, if they lose wars and so on. But it's not as if Roman political theory straightforwardly ties Octoritas to some schema of things, some tick box list of stuff, so that you can evaluate an emperor as either having it or not having it. It's a sense. It's a kind of ocean in which you swim. Quite a diverse ocean. I mean, you could apply it to Perugia, which is Republican, or even more seniorial or Lord-based constitutions. Cause right. The vulnerability of it is that you know, it doesn't rule out the possibility of particular individuals stepping outside the consensus and threatening it or undermining it. 
you know, it doesn't rule out the potential of rebellion. Indeed, in Roman theory, you will tend to get rebellion if someone doesn't have the octoritas. And the fact of rebellion is evidence that they don't have it. So you get, you know, these charisma issues in Roman political theory as a consequence of that. But, uh, yeah, so that's, you know, when we're talking about consent or consensus, you know, bear in mind, we're talking about that. We're not talking about some kind of, uh, you know, libertarian, uh, modern liberal thing. But even then with Perugia having its own subject peoples, yet calling itself a Republican kind of constitution, it does show you that a lot of the terms can be, yeah, bent a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, that depends on who counts as a citizen. And citizenship is always something that can be potentially withheld from particular populations in antiquity and in uh, the medieval period. It, it does not go without saying that just because you are under the dominion of a particular state that you have citizenship and the rights that go along with that, right? You can be in the dominion, you can be a, a subject of without having the rights of citizenship. Citizenship and subjecthood are originally, you know, very different things that are you know, distinct, often legally in older political systems. Today, we have blurred these things together because we have diminished to a substantial degree what the powers of citizenship are uh, for the ordinary person. While at the same time, we've universalized citizenship and claimed that everybody or very nearly everybody who lives within the territory of a state has it. So we've kind of watered down, but also universalized and equalized access to citizenship. And a consequence of this is that we don't really know who is a citizen and who's a subject. And uh, yeah. As Etienne Balabar argues, we, we have this kind of constant moving from one language to the other. Sometimes we're treating people in modern democracies like citizens and sometimes like subjects. And if we start treating them like one, we start to feel like we're forgetting the other. And it produces this constant uh, pendulum swinging between, between the two things. That might be something interesting to do. Maybe we'll do Balabar at some point. I always feel like we should be doing more French theorists. We don't do enough French theorists. Something, something to think about. Uh, but we are hitting at about an hour, and I'm starting to digress into Etienne Balabar, so we should probably wrap it up. So thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.